Well, hello and welcome back to The Will and Rob Show. Uh, my name is Will Stockdale, co-host of The Will and Rob Show and ministry associate with Ministry of State, here uh, with my very good friend and colleague, communications director. I'm getting back into giving more of your titles, Robert, that I took a break from last week, just in case people have forgotten. Good. People need to know I'm a very important person. Yes, 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 clearly, clearly. And so here uh, with Robert Hassler, um, but most importantly, uh, and something we're very excited about, something that we have been building up and talking to you about, we are honored and excited to have with us Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn to discuss the Westminster Assembly. And so Dr. Van Dixhorn, thank you so much for being on the show. Delighted to be with you both. Uh, I first met you at RTS Dallas. So you were a professor at RTS at the time, Redeemer Seminary had been um, rescued by the RTS uh, network. And so there you taught a class on the Westminster Assembly then. Uh, and now I understand you're at That's right. West- um, and then so just to give a little background and some context, um, Dr. Van Dixorn is professor of church history and director of the Craig Center for the Study of the Westminster Standards at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, You also serve as an honorary research fellow at the University of East Anglia in Norwich in the UK. Um, You have published a massive five-volume series with Oxford University Press, I believe, on the Westminster Papers of the Westminster Assembly, 1643 to 1652. And I believe on the back, Alec Ryrie said that will be the standard series used for the next hundred years uh, for (laughs) scholarly research into this period of history, which I thought was a really cool, from an esteemed historian, it was a pretty, pretty cool thing to have said. Yeah. I, I'm not sure where he's, he said that, but he's been very kind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Well, um, and so you have, you have published widely in a number of articles and published a number of books and something that Robert and I um, read kind of at the same time, I think Robert, you finished a little bit before me, but is uh, the book published by Banner of uh, Banner of uh, Truth, West Confessing the Faith, a Reader's Guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I just want to say this. My dad told me about this. This is the uh, Crossway published ESV Creeds and Confessions Bible, um, which is a, a Bible that contains in the back a number of confessions from uh, the well, creeds and confessions. So like the Apostles, the Nicene, the Chalcedonian Definition, Belgic Confession. And so uh, I got this and I bought a couple to give us friends. And so uh, they have helpful introductions at the beginning. So thank you for your your work on this. It's it's an awesome Bible yeah. to have. To, yeah, yeah. To, to be clear, my work's not on the Bible part. It's on the crazy <laughs> confessions part only. That's yes. correct. Yes. That's correct. I noticed also <laughs> that it's even after all of the uh, index at the back. So we make sure that, yeah. that scripture is prioritized right. in this. Amen. And so, <laughs> well, um, yeah, but it, it, I highly recommend that. It, it provides helpful context to... Um, to those creeds and confessions. But um, as we said, we're excited to have you here. And, and we wanted to talk a little bit about chapter, the Westminster Assembly, like I said, the historical context, and then focus on chapter 23 that is on the civil magistrate. So how that, uh, what that means for our lives. But um, in order for us to, you know, uh, and for our listeners to get a little more context, we just love for you to get a little bit of background about how you got to where you are and what developed your interest in this particular part of church history. Yeah. Well, um, I, uh, I went to seminary wanting to be a pastor. While I was there, 
Uh, I had fairly recently become a Presbyterian. Uh, before that, I was in the continental reform tradition. Um, and uh, in order to increase my familiarity uh, with the Westminster Standards, one, one church I had me teach the Shorter Catechism to kids. Another church had me teach the Westminster Confession of Faith to adults. Um, and uh, so that, that, that began my exposure to the Westminster Standards. And then uh, Sinclair Ferguson took a, a poorly directed and rather aimless uh, independent study and, and asked me to focus it by looking at uh, the, uh, something in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18 on assurance. Uh, and so that got me studying more of the assembly uh, in its historical context. And I ended up deciding that I wanted to take more courses and then do a THM on the Westminster assembly and, and uh, preaching. And then that spun out into a PhD because when I was working on uh, teaching the standards and researching the assembly, I realized there's just a lot of material out there that people uh, had not been using. And I was also guessing that there was a lot of material that people hadn't yet found. Uh, and so that led to the PhD. And uh, early on in the first year or so, uh, just some treasure troves of material on the Westminster Assembly. So it was like a PhD for dummies. The Lord enabled me to find enough stuff uh, that, that it, you know, I'd have to be able to say something new. Um, and so that was very kind of him. And, and then um, just due to some, you know, lax standards at the University of Cambridge, they kept me on for another four years as, uh, as a research fellow. Um, and, and so I did a couple of postdocs uh, there. Um, and started pastoring, which is what I wanted to do all along. So I, I was, uh, it was very enriching to be doing both at the same time, part-time pastoring, full-time at the university. Um, and then um, I, I, didn't, I didn't have real jobs at the University of Cambridge, right? These weren't going to last forever. They're just postdocs. So um, uh, I started looking for a church where I could pastor and found one in the DC area. Uh, so, so in 2008, moved to DC started teaching at RTS on the social flipping thing. Now full-time pastor, part-time professor. And then the, the, the part-time professor thing just kind of grew and grew until I was sort of full-time both. Uh, and, and, and then uh, in 2015 began serving as a full-time professor only uh, at RTS. And then in 2018, uh, professor only, uh, full-time professor at, uh, at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, where I had been uh, so many years before with my wife. So yeah. That's how the, the, the pastoring, the DC connection, the Westminster uh, uh, assembly stuff all kind of comes together. Well, that, that clearly comes out in your writing, especially this book is the pastoral heart, the, 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 the way that, what does this mean for us? How does this nourish and sustain us? And I, when I was reading this, I met with my pastor, Glenn Hoberg uh, of Grace oh, Downtown. Yeah. And Love so that. I had the book with me and he was like, yeah, I would, I would meet with Chad when he was here and he was really interested in church planning. That was I was like, did y'all talk about this? And we're like, no, he was really just had a lot of questions about church planning. <laughs> it's true. I, you know, I, I wanted to plan a church and, and I, I, won't, I won't keep you long, but here, but, but I was trying to think of where in DC we could plan a church. And, and the thing that most attracted me were these, were these huge riverboats that were always empty on Sunday mornings, <laughs> tons of parking right by a Metro. And I could have had like a really trendy name for the church, like the river. <laughs> and you just sort of float up and down Anacostia while worshiping or something like that. I mean, just this, you know, big, big, and someone else is going to have to do it. Plant a church on one of those big boats. 
Okay, I'm sure you just inspired one idea. of our one of our listeners. You're us, Robert. I mean, Isn't come on. This is this is yes. I mean, just just parking. It's not now. You have to kind of fumigate it after a late night out on the boat. They don't always. Right. Yeah, I think by 11 a.m. they smell all right, but it, it does require a little freshening up. That's a good point. You really need someone. The river, to the river PCA. Oh my gosh! Yeah, you could do baptisms right there in the Anacostia just as well. Dunk <laughs> in or just scoop Anacostia. Yeah, Baptist Presbyterian. The opportunities are endless. Oh wow! Well, we'll be taking notes about this, and we'll see if this is something <laughs> that we can uh, float out there. And uh, ask you, but you'd mentioned discoveries. And I remember in the class, you'd mentioned this. And so as we get into the background of the Westminster Assembly, um, you had said you'd found documents in, I guess, libraries that hadn't been seen by people for ages. And so what were some of the things yeah. that you found that were really surprising you that you shed light on the origins of the Pre- Presbyterian tradition uh, and, and the assembly as well? Yeah. So, so I suppose uh Two, two, two big tasks were before me. One was um, trying to take all the minutes of the Westminster Assembly, which were known to exist. I found a few extra pages, but, but basically we knew what was there, but they were not very legible. And only about a third of them had ever been printed or published. And so just kind of reading the scribe's handwriting, that was a job in itself. Uh, and so this uh, obscenely expensive five-volume set that you mentioned, uh, published by Oxford, uh, you know, three of the volumes are just minutes, that is records, kind of blow by blow uh, uh, records of what people were saying and so on. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Not, not conventional minutes, as, as you would find in a Presbyterian context, it says, you know, we decided this today. Uh, it's more really uh, capturing speeches than decisions. Uh, but but uh, what the Lord helped me to find were uh, in, in London, Cambridge and Oxford principally, um, uh, different papers written by the Westminster Assembly. And so the last volume of the set is filled with uh, different position papers, petitions, and so on, some of which had been printed previously, some of which were known to have existed but had not been seen for hundreds of years. Um, and so that's kind of great. You know, if you, if you if you think about trying to understand what the Westminster divines are saying in the shorter catechism or the Westminster confession of faith, you think, how do they, how do they use this phrase? Well, normally you of course look at the confession and catechisms and see how the phrases use. Well, if you've got a, if you've got a hundred other documents uh, uh, that provides a lot of extra context in terms of how they're thinking, how they're writing, how they use phrases and ideas and so on. So the papers volume is actually the thing that perhaps excites me the most uh, in, in that set. Um, so yeah, the house of Lords kept a copy of, of everything they received and their library didn't burn down in the 19th century, unlike the commons library. Um, and and so there was a treasure trove and, and some people stole papers from, uh, the commons, thankfully. Uh, I know that's not a good, uh, kind of perspective from the, uh, from the eighth commandment, but I'm very glad that they stole a lot of papers uh, and, and so those survived in Oxford and Cambridge um, and, and so on. They just kind of passed down through families. Uh, to help us understand, what would be the, the incentive for stealing? Was it just to have a record? like Oh, a because they planned artifact? on writing their own histories. Yeah. So, oh. so you want to write a history of parliament uh, rather than the inconvenience of actually using the parliamentary archives. You just kind of walk away with bundles of paper. Yeah. Okay. With the no doubt noble intention of returning them at some point. Of course, 
What's a 400 year old library fee? I'm curious as to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know when uh, I started sort of studying the confession, I I took a class at Covenant Seminary and then did a little bit of uh, research last uh, semester with one of my classes. And um, I think one thing that's important to sort of always keep in the back of our minds when we think about the confession is that it's not you know, we don't Presbyterians. We don't believe it was sort of dropped down from the sky like the the Mormon tablet. Well, they might not believe that at Covenant, but I tell you, no, I'm just kidding. Yes, no, that's right. Yeah. It, it exists in a in a context, um, uh, not just the the theological debates that were happening. Um, I was blown away reading uh, speeches or or sermons delivered uh, by different Westminster divines about justification yeah. and even a doctrine that we think is so sort of uniform. Got to have so much agreement on. There was a lot of sort of nuance with different people, um, but there's also a political context. And I was wondering if you could uh, sort of help us understand what exactly was the political context of the Westminster yeah. Assembly, because I know it's it's complicated because we're diving into the English Civil Wars and yeah. who's fighting who. It can be tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Historians are still arguing about the historical context, but, you know, it basically uh, the, the, the complicating factor is that the is that the king is the king of three different kingdoms. So James, then Charles, is the king of England and of Scotland and of Ireland. Um, and uh, what precipitates the wars is that uh, he makes essentially uh, a kind of political and economic and religious mistakes in each of those three contexts. Um, and so uh, because he is the king of three different kingdoms and because he is alienating, he and his and the deputies underneath of him are alienating uh, people with political and legal interests, with constitutional concerns and alienating uh, uh, sort of moneyed uh, interests uh, by the way, overlapping constituencies. Many people with political concerns have lots of money, um, and alienating people on a, on, a, on a religious level with different innovations in the church, things that he himself was pushing um, or allowing his archbishops to push. Um, uh, Charles ends up with first a major problem in Scotland. Uh, the Scottish just kind of have enough of his of, of the political distance and missteps, you know money mismanagement and, and, and then the imposition of an English uh, liturgy on a Scottish people, an English Episcopalian liturgy, liturgy on a Scottish Presbyterian people, uh, the, the, the Scottish pushback first. Um, and uh, they come up with their own covenant that unites them. Eventually, they even invade England. And uh, it's a kind of a problem for a king to have one of his countries invading the other one of his countries. Uh, so, so this, this then, uh, to somewhat simplify the narrative, uh, causes a kind of an English crisis. So for about 10 years, uh, uh, the king had managed to rule England without calling parliament. The reason why he, any king ever calls parliament is to raise taxes. Um, and he had managed through creative and highly controversial fiscal policies to to kind of generate enough money to not have to call parliament because whenever he called parliament and asked for tax increases, they would always ask for a religious change. And so he can avoid all of that by just not calling parliament. Well, once Scotland invades England, uh, he needs to kick the Scots out. 
To do that, he needs to raise an English army and that he doesn't have enough money to do. So he has to call parliament. And he does this a couple of times. He calls parliament. Parliament, of course, asks for a constitutional and religious changes. He says, no, the Scots are still in England. So he has to call parliament again. And this time parliament fairly quickly says, how, how about this? How about parliament doesn't get shut down until we say so rather than you say so? And he's in enough trouble that he has to say yes. And that's part of his undoing. Um, and, but where's Ireland fit in? Well, uh, the English, enough English people don't trust the king that instead of raising uh, money for an army to kick the Scots out, they raise money and just give the money to the Scots and ask them to go home. Uh, that makes the king apoplectic with anger. Um, and uh, it lets him know how little he's trusted. Um, the king, in an, because there's now this profound distrust, begins looking around for uh, sources of military support for himself, and he turns to Ireland. Uh, Ireland, which is mostly Catholic, um, although there are definitely Protestant pockets and so on, Episcopalian and sort of Presbyterian. Uh, and, and, and so he, he involves Ireland, and there are other problems going on in Ireland, including a major massacre. Um, uh, and, uh, and the English are, are, are terrified. The English parliamentarians are terrified of Irish Catholics uh, coming onto their soil. Uh, and so now we've got a problem basically in, in three different kingdoms. Hmm. Um, and uh, within a few years, you have civil war in each of those countries. And you have armies from Ireland and Scotland. You have armies from Scotland and England. You have armies from England and Ireland and, and, and so on. So there's war, there's, there's just three, three civil wars going on at once, plus wars, plus armies marching from one kingdom to the other. And it's a complete disaster. And it's in that context where there's so many problems that parliament is meeting, uh, that armies are marching, and that parliament is at the Westminster Assembly to try and solve the religious component of this multinational problem. Hmm. Oh. And so the Westminster Assembly is called about a year into the war um, uh, to try and help deal with these problems and, and come up with a proposal how the church should be governed, how it should worship, and what it should believe. Hopefully something that will be, you know, calming and not nuclear. So what were the, when the assemblies called um, and what is the document that they're working with or was their document? And then what are they seeking to change about it specifically? Yeah. What elements do they see that want to be changed and how do they decide where to take this? As yeah. in, what are some driving motivating factors that they're like theological interests that they're like, this needs to, we need to resolve this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's a moving target. Um, uh, Will the, uh, uh, the Westminster Assembly is basically given specific tasks by Parliament. Parliament is the one that called them. It's giving them the freedom to have all these discussions. The first task is to revise 39 articles, if necessary. Uh, turns out they think it is necessary. Um, uh, and so they work on that for a few months. But at the same time, Parliament's negotiating with Scotland. Um, and the Scottish Presbyterians realize as do the English parliamentarians, that the English aren't 
the, the parliamentary side of the war against the king isn't really doing well. Uh, and it's not obvious that they're going to win. Uh, and so uh, the Scots and the English parliamentarians come up with what's called a solemn league and covenant. It has a military dimension and it has a religious dimension. It has a, there's the league and there's the covenant. Um, and uh, that document's being negotiated while the Westminster Assembly is talking about the 39 articles. And in, in the autumn of 1643, a few months into the Westminster Assembly's history, um, the deal is signed. And basically, it commits the English Parliament and the English Church through the Westminster Assembly to come up with a kind of understanding of theology, worship, and government that is going to be the same in both Scotland and in England. And in return, the Scots are going to send an army southward into England to help the English parliamentarians in their war against the king. So, uh, so starting in the autumn of 1643, the, the, the whole emphasis shifts into not revising English documents, but creating new ones. Mm. Um, it's, not, it's not necessarily the case that they had to do that, but that, that's the thing that most appealed to the Scots. Um, not revising Scottish or English documents, but creating something new between them. And then the, the first focus is really on the ministry of the church. Uh, and the assembly uh, immediately turns to the whole problem of, of, uh, of ordination. What's a minister for? What's he gonna, what, how, how, how do we get ministers in the church? Um, uh, because with so many ministers being kicked out of pulpits because of their political or religious views, so many extra ministers needed as chaplains for the army and the Navy, no Air Force. Um, uh, there's just a huge shortage of ministers. And, and so that's their first focus. What's a minister how do we make them? Um, and that that and then the assembly be, can, keeps working on church government. Um, at the same time, it begins work working on worship. So they start one project, and then they add a project. What's worship going to look like? Um, and uh, they 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 actually finish their work on worship first. And then while they're just finishing their work on worship, still working on church government, then they begin to work on theology. Let's make some catechisms or a catechism and, and a confession of faith. Um, and uh, the confession gets done first. Eventually, they decide they need two catechisms. Samuel Rutherford very memorably says, you know, we're really having trouble serving milk and meat in the same dish. Uh, and so they end up making the larger catechism and the shorter catechism. Uh, <clears throat> and so that, that takes us into 1647, 1648, once you add all the proof texts. And then uh, the political culture is just so different by this point in time. Uh, the Presbyterians are kind of outvoted in Parliament, just very narrowly. Uh, the people who are left there are not inclined to try and uh, take the Westminster Assembly's documents and use them for the whole church. Um, and so things begin to fizzle in, in 1648. Work goes on, a variety of tasks, but things are really fizzling in 48. Okay. So five, five years of hard work. Okay. Um. So you said something that I think maybe for listeners, especially uh, our listeners who um, uh, born and raised in America and American culture, uh, yeah. you said the, the parliament authorized the Westminster Assembly. And so yeah. the sort of church state dynamic going on here, that's probably pretty foreign to most of us who can, uh, sort of conceptualize that within the lens of yeah. American and American constitutionalism. Um, 
But of course, the, the divines do discuss church-state relations in chapter 23 of the Confession. Could you talk a little bit about that chapter in particular, yeah. what the divines, how they conceptualized that, that relationship, and then yeah. any revisions that may have happened in that chapter, particularly in the American context? Yeah, yeah, great. great. Yeah, thank, thank you. Um, so uh, uh, it's since, since Constantine, Robert, as you'll know, um, the, uh, the state, Christian states, or states with heavy Christian influences, uh, felt both the freedom and the obligation to try and ensure that the church was doing things right, uh, whether the church uh, wanted that help or not. Um, that doesn't change at the Reformation. It, it, just like emperors, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor had his own religious obligations, the King of France and so on. Um, uh, Protestant states all had invasive civil magistrates. Um, and arguably, the Reformation wouldn't have happened without their help. So, uh, you know, whether it be Calvin's cautious work working with civil magistrates in Geneva, Zwingli's enthusiastic uh, co-laboring with civil magistrates in Zurich, um, uh, Luther's emboldening of civil magistrates in Germany. Um, I, I, I think in some ways it was a poison pill, uh, but every reformer swallowed it. Um, and um, in England, as the power of the archbishops diminished in the 1640s uh, and then disappeared, the English parliament enthusiastically jumped into that empty space and uh, wanted to uh, reform the church and make sure that sort of the tyranny that they saw in bishops would not reappear. Um, uh, there's this wonderful line in one of the private diaries of a parliamentarian who says, you know, we don't want ministers and elders uh, in charge of church discipline. We all know what passions clergymen are subject to. Uh, better to have level-headed lawyers and politicians uh, making sure the church uh, orders itself. So, so they call the Westminster Assembly and they take the, the they even feel the freedom to revise uh, what the Westminster Assembly does, whether it be worship, government, whatever. Um, and it turns out that when the Westminster Assembly wrote chapter 23, Parliament didn't like it. Um, uh, the Westminster Assembly believed in what you could call the establishment principle, that a Christian nation or a nation with a Christian government ought to have one established church funded uh, through the agency or assistance of the government uh, with civil penalties attached for people who don't conform and so on. But that was not enough for Parliament. Uh, Parliament wanted to go one step further and say that the government of the church would be under uh, uh, Parliament and uh, censures or discipline would be managed by Parliament ultimately. And the Assembly said, no, uh, an established church, but the church has its own, its own government independent of the state. And that's, that's, that's the point of disagreement. There's a slight majority in parliament who believed that uh, the church does not have from Jesus Christ its own government. And so um, the, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, although loved by the House of Lords, which had a majority of Presbyterians, was not 
uh, would never be approved by the House of Commons, which had a, a slight minority. Um, and, uh, and when the House of Commons did eventually uh, authorize the publishing of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 23, uh, you know, just was, was not a part of that. Um, so that's the first conflict between the Westminster Assembly and the House of Commons. Um, the House of Commons is, is, is Erastian. Uh, they follow the Zurich uh, model where the civil government really is in charge, even of discipline. Uh, they don't want the civil government to be in charge of preaching or sacraments, but, but they do want them in charge of discipline. Now, um, uh, th that causes all kinds of conflicts in London and in the nation, Presbyterians refusing to play ball with Parliament and vice versa. Uh, jumping ahead, uh, the Philadelphia Assembly meeting in uh, 1788, just down the street from the Constitutional Convention of the United States, decided to create the constitution of the Presbyterian Church uh, in the United States. Uh, and that's what they called it. And uh, they, after 50 years of Presbyterian conversation in America, they took the sense of most American ministers, which was uh, the Westminster Assembly had not gone far enough actually to, di to distance uh, a church and state. And so the Philadelphia Assembly revised chapter 23 pretty heavily uh, in its later, later paragraphs. So both the Westminster Assembly and <clears throat> the Philadelphia Assembly, if I can call it that, 1640s, 1780s, um, agree that God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world, and that he's ordained civil magistrates, um, and, uh, and, and, and he has uh, uh, ordained a government in the church that's distinct from civil magistrates. Both the, uh, the Westminster Assembly and the Philadelphia Assembly also agree that it's lawful for Christians to accept the job of being a magistrate, uh, and that we're all to submit uh, to, to, to civil magistrates. Um, both agree uh, that there is such a thing as just war. So they're on, they're on the same, same page so far. Then, uh, then both of them agree, Westminster Assembly, Philadelphia Assembly, that the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the word or sacraments, um, but the Westminster Assembly says that a civil magistrate can call synods, and that actually, if he's a Christian magistrate, ordinarily he will call uh, the big assemblies of the church. He will actually they they will invite them to have a general assembly and so on. Um, the Americans say no, um, and this is where they say he may not in the in in the least uh, interfere in matters of faith. So there's a there's a sharp difference. Um, and then interestingly, and pardon me if I'm going on too long here, um, uh, the Americans do say that uh, the American Presbyterians, as nursing fathers, it's the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord. Very interesting statement. Uh, where, where the Westminster Assembly says it's the duty of the magistrate to suppress blasphemies and heresies. The, the Americans don't go there, but they do say it's the job of the civil magistrate to protect the church. I mean, per personally, uh, I think it's significant that they, that they uh, still hold on to that idea. I don't really think you can defend that. Um, and, um, 
So I, I, I don't I don't think that's biblical. I don't see how you can get to that statement um, uh, from the general idea of Romans 13. Uh, I, I, I don't I don't see how First Peter 2 gets us there. Um, uh, the, the fact that there is a civil magistrate that we owe obedience and so on. I, I, I'm not sure how you get to the idea that, that, that the civil magistrate needs to not only protect its citizens, but actually has a unique job to protect the church. So I think that's interesting. And the, uh, I guess, what, what did I just say? I think I just said that my own opinion is interesting. That's not really what I mean. I, I think the statement is interesting um, and I quibble with it. And, and unlike the Westminster Assembly, the Philadelphia Assembly never uh, applied any proof texts to its revision. Uh, of the Westminster Standards. So there's there's no uh, scriptural arguments there. So uh, what was that then? Was, was that a, a, a holdover from the original document that they felt? Why didn't they just remove that entirely then? What was the, um, and pardon well, me, my cynical nature enough goes like, well, the reason we have an American revision is because there's a constitution and they knew they couldn't get away with the old version in this country, that there'd be too much conflict. Um, but then I hear you say, you know, that that they actually held on to more than maybe they should have. And so what, what, why, why that scenario, why that yeah. end result? So, 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 well, we just, there's a lot less, there's been a lot more attention to the Westminster assembly than the Philadelphia assembly in terms of the history of Presbyterian research. Um, uh, I, I, I think they felt like they were going a really, I, I think they felt like they're they're making huge changes. I mean, no longer will the civil magistrate suppress blasphemies and heresies. Uh, no longer will the civil magistrate kind of back up the church like had been done in New, Ling- New England or Old England uh, in the previous century. Um, that was that was pretty radical. Uh, as well, uh, it, this is paragraph three of chapter twenty three. There's a strong argument that everyone. Uh, ought to enjoy a full free uh, uh, liberty in religion and so on. So what are they trying to do by saying the civil magistrate is to protect the church of our common Lord without giving preference to any denomination? I, th- I think that, I think it's a way of saying that the civil magistrate ought to protect Christian liberty uh, and liberty of conscience. Um, I can just say I really like it when civil magistrates do that. Um, I, I just think that the way it's phrased overstates it. Mm. So, and then there's also actually, I, I think, just an oversight at the very end of the larger catechism. Uh, I think it's in the, the part that talks about the Lord's Prayer. It says, what do we mean when we say, when we pray, you know, your kingdom come? Um. And uh, the larger catechism, among other things, says that the church, we're also praying that the church of our Lord will be maintained uh, by the government. Um, maintained basically means sort of supported by a tithe system. I think they just missed that. The Americans just missed that in their edits. Um, so I think that's a mistake. I think this is, this is a way of talking about, about Christian liberty. But it's robustly stated that it's the that the civilized state has to protect the church of our common Lord. And I, I, I'm just saying, I think that's a bit of an overstatement. In terms of the whole revision, you know, why did the Americans um, uh, distance church and state like they did? Um, this is a conversation that had been going on since the 1720s. 
and ministers had been allowed to take exception to the establishment principle uh, embedded in the original confession. And I think the experience of persecution by magistrates and the experience of interference by magistrates made the Americans less uh, excited about and eventually opposed to the idea of a state-backed church. Uh, and so the Presbyterians especially are opposed to this. But Presbyterians would have been uh, oppressed by Congregationalists in Massachusetts. Uh, it's not just Old England problems, it's New England problems. And so they, they really were the minority. Uh, the founder of American Presbyterianism uh, was persecuted by the Anglican uh, governor of New, of, of New York for, for preaching in New York. So they have, they have their own sort of fresh and vivid reasons on a practical level for opposing a, an established church. The question is, did they also have biblical reasons? Again, there's no proof text cited here. Experience alone could lead them there, but did they have biblical theological reasons? Um, we, need to, we need to do more research there. And there is a biblical theological reason to separate the church and the state. Um, uh, it, when the Westminster Assembly was arguing for an established church, where did they go? They, they went to the Old Testament. Um, and they, they, they realized that the church is Israel. Uh, it's the continuation of Israel. But they didn't ask the question, Israel, when? Um, and the New Testament says, yeah, the church is Israel, but wilderness or exile, you know, Hebrews, First uh, Peter, uh, not Israel in the promised land. Uh, and so there's a kind of biblical theological error there on the part of the Westminster divine. It's not, I, I'm oversimplifying. It's not like they really thought they were in heaven. Um, but the analogies that they chose were, were Israel and the promised land. Um, you know, it's, it's Ezra and Nehemiah. It's, it's Chronicles and Kings when it should have been Pentateuch and uh, exilic books. Did the Westminster, did, did the uh, Philadelphia Assembly get all that? Someone has to research that. They have to look at the writings of these and sermons of these people and, and try to understand that better. So we got River Church and uh, new research on the uh, Philadelphia <laughs> Assembly. There, there you go. Two, two, two freebies. Well, so with that, I want to take this from, so we have our 1788 revision of chapter 23. And as part of our ministry, we minister to staffers and members who work on the Hill. And then people who listen are also obviously interested in how Christians ought to relate to the state. What ought, what is yeah. a healthy biblical God honoring way to carry out their work uh, and to carry out their citizenship also? Uh, Cause that is a meaningful, that is a meaningful category for identity. Yeah. And so yeah. my, my question for you is how would you seek to pastor and apply these, th this chapter of the confession to people in those contexts? Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I suppose for, uh, for those who are in government and those who are uh, voting for and submitting to governments, remembering the opening line of, of, of this, you know, um, uh, thoughtfully constructed chapter, uh, re remembering that God is uh, the supreme Lord and King of all the world. What, what's, what's that mean on a daily basis? Uh, I, I, I think that's, that's humbling and comforting. Um, 
it's 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 humbling because when someone gains power, we can forget where it comes from that it's granted to us. Um, and it's it's comforting when people feel powerless to remember that there is a supreme Lord and King of all the world, mm-hmm. and He's put people where they are as long as He wants them to be there. Um, so I, I I think that that initial framing of 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 the the the, the role. Uh, of the civil magistrate is just it's just really helpful for Christians, um, and and as we 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 think about um, voting for um, uh, leaders in the civil realm, thinking what what's going to conduce to God's glory and the public good, um, th- those th- those are just really really important questions, um, and and then um, you know w- without getting into the weeds. We really do, in a fallen world, need the power of the sword for defense, encouragement of good, and punishment of evildoers. Um, we 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 have to fund those things, uh, and then and then do them as well as we can. And then skipping down to the final paragraph, <clears throat> uh, the uh, the Westminster um, uh, divines and the Americans could both agree as well. That's the duty of people to pray for magistrates. I, I think it just in general in life, it's, it's hard to be really angry about people you pray for uh, just on a kind of familial friendship or, 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 or kind of employment neighborly level, you know. Uh, but when it comes to magistrates as well, it's, it's really hard to have super angry conversations about the government just after you uh, prayed for them at the beginning of a meal. Um, so uh, I, I, that, that, that might seem sort of practical to the point of boring, but I think it's really important. It's the duty to be able to pray for magistrates and to honor their persons. I think once you begin to pray for them, honoring follows right after it. So the, so the way the Westminster divines start that fourth paragraph uh, is really key. To pay them tribute and other dues, you know, taxes are not optional uh, when we uh, don't don't like uh, what's going on. Uh, and the Westminster Assembly just really thoughtfully deals with this as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and the Americans see no reason uh, to change this. Uh, unbelief, difference in religion, um, or infidelity or difference in religion, as the original uh, version puts it, uh, doesn't make the uh, the magistrate's just and legal authority void or empty. Uh, I mean, b- baked into that, there is the idea that there can be an unjust or illegal use of authority. And, and the Westminster divines do a lot of thinking about this. Uh, William Bridge writes about the government. Uh, Samuel Rutherford famously thinks very deeply about the, uh, about the, the, the nature of governmental authority, what, what, what that means, um, what's created, What's unique to a fallen world? Um, what are we ceding to government? What are we not? Uh, so there's, there's a lot of actually um, a sort of deep political and, and theological thinking about government uh, done by members of the Westminster Assembly, as you would expect uh, people at, at that time. Um, and uh, so, so I, I think all of these uh, statements uh, are, are are helpful. And then it's helpful that they go on to say ecclesiastical persons are not exempted from this. 
Um, I think that's the understatement of the paragraph. I think we're not, not only are we not exempted, we ought to attempt to be examples uh, in, in the way in which we pray uh, uh, privately, publicly, the way in which we speak, the way in which we preach. Uh, we're, not, we're not exempted uh, from this kind of honor. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think there are probably, uh, and there are, in fact, undoubtedly, uh, sermons that should be taken off the air if this were taken seriously. Uh, and uh, th there, are, there are pastors and elders who, who would need to, to conduct themselves differently if they were to take this seriously. So I, th I think that the Westminster Confession of Faith here is really useful, uh, and, and not just for the slice of the population that's Presbyterian. Um, I, I, I think evangelicals generally could really benefit from kind of mulling this over, chasing through the different proof texts that are appended to these different statements, and uh, thinking through the, the implications of this. <clears throat> so uh, fa famously, uh, paragraph four also says, by the way, the Pope does not have civil jurisdiction. Um, and uh, uh of course, this is a time when the Pope is definitely claiming that jurisdiction right into the 19th century. Um, 20th century has become pretty implausible. Um, uh, but, but, uh, but there is that too. The church ought not to be claiming and jurisdiction over the civil magistrate. And of course, the, the only, the only uh, religious um, authority at that time claiming to do that was, was the Pope. So he gets special mention here in paragraph four. Well, thank you for all of this. Thank you for the, the, the background and for the pastoral wisdom and insight and application. Uh, you're also working on a book that's soon to be released. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, I, I wonder if the publisher would describe it as soon to be released. Um, I, I, uh, I am on sabbatical trying to write a history of the Westminster assembly. Uh, I, 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 I've got a, another volume that's coming up first. It's a journal by a Westminster divine named John Lightfoot, one of the great scholars of the 17th century who, who was at the Westminster Assembly. Uh, it's his own kind of personal account of what's going on and actually fills in some gaps where we're lacking all official records. So Oxford's publishing that, the Lord willing, maybe next year. I need to get that to them like within a week. Uh, it's, supposed to be, it's supposed to be done uh, in September, then December, and now I'm embarrassingly a little bit behind. And, and then with that, plus those other five volumes, I, I feel like I've got the component parts necessary for a history, but I haven't actually built the history. It's like, it's like I've, I've got sort of the Home Depot of Westminster Assembly research, right? Everything's on the shelves, it's all labeled, but I haven't actually built anything yet. And so I'm going to try and write, I, I guess, what's like an intellectual biography of a synod. That's what I'm trying to do this year. Um, and uh, hopefully that will uh, make sense for both the theologians and the historians. Hopefully I'll make the history make sense for the theologians and the theology makes sense for the historians, but there's two very different groups of people who read Westminster Assembly stuff. And uh, that, that's made the writing a little bit more complicated as well as the fact that writing a, a kind of a biography of a synod with a, a couple hundred people involved, um, it has a lot of moving parts. So um, I, I'm, I'm well on my way and I've got a lot of a long ways to go, but hopefully that'll be done in, uh, this year and uh, come out, come out in a couple of years. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for uh, your scholarship and your uh, experience pastoring and serving the church and 
uh, caring for students uh, like me as well and teaching us these things that uh, matter a ton. And as we saw that the, the chapter 23 is immensely, all the confession is, uh, is so practical and so um, valuable to our day-to-day living. And so thank you for showing us that and uh, hope that uh, you have a great rest of your week. Well, Rob, thank you for having me on your show. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just been great to sort of reflect with you on these things. So thank you. You're welcome. Well, uh, that's all we have for today. You can uh, follow us on Twitter. Dr. Van Dusen, are you on? Are you on the Twitter sphere? Uh, no. You're happier. I mean, You're I happier may, that I may way. have an account, but I don't think so. Okay. Well, we won't encourage people to follow you there. We would we would <laughs> never encourage someone to get on Twitter. So uh, be happy as you are. <laughs> However, you came to the Lord, stay that way. <laughs> so. the, the, the Craig Center does have um, a Facebook account. Okay. Uh, and uh, you can kind of catch up on uh, Westminster Assembly research there. And the, and the, and the Westminster Assembly project um, uh, has, it's, has, a, has a webpage, westminsterassembly.org, which has a ton of resources which we're building uh, weekly uh, on, on the Westminster Assembly and its members. So, Well, we'll get that and add that to the show notes so that right. it's there in the link. But uh, thank you all for listening. You follow Robert on Twitter at RD Hassler. You can follow me at Stockdale Will. Uh, thank you all for tuning in and we'll see you next week. 